Hi there. Welcome to another dish. I have been looking forward to this one for a very long time. I've been nagging her forever. But we have Tina Brown, and I am more than thrilled. You don't need a real introduction to Tina Brown, the legendary editor and great and funny writer, which I think is often <laughs> under, underplayed. Uh, former editor of The Tatler, then Vanity Fair, which she basically created, and The New Yorker, which she completely reinvented for the better. And now she's just written a, a book called The Palace Papers, which is a review of the, the royal family as it now teeters towards the death of the matriarch, which is going to be this enormous moment, I think, in, in the history of the monarchy, in the history of Britain, really. And we'll talk about that later. But I wanted to start, Tina, with saying thanks for coming. And Well, th th thank you. I mean, you know, Andrew, you, we go way back and this is, I've been looking forward to this for a long time too. So this is great. Well, great. You, like me, you in your high school, you were writing journalism. You, you, were, you were thumping out a, a little magazine. You were criticizing your headmistress, you, you describe yourself, uh, you only have to look at Wikipedia to find this, but as an extremely subversive influence in your childhood and high school. How did that, how, I mean, this also seems to be come spirit of your journalism. It is, it is it's doing this to people in authority or, or, or having fun, essentially. Tell me about that, your early childhood. Well, journalism. you know, I was the, the child of a, of a film producer and a very witty, funny, sort of outsiderly kind of mother, you know, who always felt that she was sort of, you know, she, she, was, she was an upwardly mobile person in the British class system. And there's that, it kind of put her outside a little bit, she felt, I think. So I had this nice kind of inside-outside childhood. I went to very posh boarding schools, but always kind of felt a bit on the outside because of my background, I suppose. And that, I think, helped establish me as a kind of observer of the kind of upper classes, the others, always felt that I was, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a renegade in all of that. And that sort of stayed with me, I think. You were also completely lacking. You were never intimidated by these people. That's what sort of staggers me, that, that you could talk to the royals, you could, you could talk to these leading writers. And this is what really amazed me. From a very young age, you... You reached out and found some brilliant writers that you were as a, in your college years. I mean, and afterwards, you are in touch with Auburn War. You that you you your network spreads out the sheer chutzpah of this young woman. <laughs> I, I'm in awe of it. How did you well, do that? Tell me about I Auburn think, War. Well, Auburn War, I just loved Auburn War. I mean, in those days, the New Statesman magazine, which was a weekly magazine. I suppose its nearest thing here is the nation, but far less earnest. I mean, the New Statesman was just the kind of hub of all these really clever writers. I mean, at one point, the literary department was Martin Amis, Julian Barnes, Claire Tomlin, James Fenton. I mean, this yeah. was a kind of golden moment, really, in that yes. editorial department of Great Turnstile Street, as it was in Fleet Street area. And I just wanted to be in that club. You know, that's the club I always wanted to be in. So I would literally wait quivering for Thursday afternoon for it to show up in the newsstand at Oxford, mm. grab it and read it, inhale it, you know, and, and all I wanted to do was to write for it. And I did when I was at, you know, when I was at Oxford, actually, I sent pieces in and they were accepted. That for me was, I mean, that was like an Oscar for me and always has been really. Yeah, I had the same feeling, but with The Spectator in my day, which was a sort of, and again, but what these had with these magazines were these little, these groups of people that were kind of had a similar sensibility, sometimes different opinions and views, but they all shared some kind of, and that's what a magazine really is, isn't it? I mean, I, I sort of feel that the internet kind of, because it got rid of paper and staples, prevented the binding together of groups of writers. It basically abolished the magazine as a, as a concept. Do you, do you agree yeah, and, and as a club, a bit like that. But I have to say that, you know, when I started the Daily Beast, I did feel I was going for that kind of club, if you like. And there is one thing that I think remains true, which is that sort of cleverness and talent is a kind of, it's like, you know, fatic communion between dolphins, you know, and when the sort of sensation starts that this is a clever place that you can read other writers who you terribly admire it sort of attracts them very quickly. I mean, if we remember the New York Review of Books under Bob Silvers, you know, he paid nothing. But he did turn that place into a sort of incredible platform. People wanted to, they, they felt 
cleverer and better simply by being in it. And that's sort of the goal you sort of go for if you're trying to start something new. And I mean, you certainly did that at the New Republic. Yes, they were print things, but I think the dish reader has a lot in common with that. I do too. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, there's an irreverence to journalism that is part of a British inheritance. And what, what I think you did in many ways in that period was to inject a sort of antidote to earnestness in some of this stuff. Because it, I mean, I don't know about when I first came to America, started reading the newspapers and the, most of the magazines, it was so portentous and drowsy. It still is. It still is. It's very honest. <laughs> There's Isn't a that a function of running the world? You kind of have to be earnest. And maybe Britain, if you read Britain in the 19th century, it was a lot more earnest. Maybe. I don't know. Well, I suppose so. But I think that there is something about the huge plurality of the British press. There's so many outlets, you know, that everybody's, you know, competing with one another. And there is a tradition in England, which they don't have here, never did have here, of very, very highfalutin writers being also willing to write for sort of tabloid journalism. I mean, you know, Big name sort of serious historians are quite happy to bang out a piece for the Daily Mirror or the, you know, or the Daily Mail. There's a lack of sort of, there is a sort of high-low xylophony kind of way of being, which I personally like very much. I mean, obviously the plurality now, you know, the quality is much less than it was, but they're still very smart, some of the stuff in those British papers, which I realize the palace papers in my book, I've spent a lot of time talking about the appalling excesses of the tabloids and stuff, but there's also a lot of talent. The trouble is the way they expend the t- talent a lot of the time. But, you know, the headlines, the, the whole blurbs, the picture editing, just just full of life, vitality. Yeah, I think my own theory about this is that the BBC in Britain kind of operated, certainly in the past, maybe less so today, but as this sort of authoritative, neutral news dissemination source, even though it has that affect. And so it, it liberated everyone else to rewrite the news, but with edge and commentary and, and verve. And, and the fact that the British could buy a newspaper knowing it was a left-wing newspaper, but taking that into account, enjoying what it offered, even if you disagree with it, and vice versa with the right-wing newspaper. Although my house, we, were, you know, we, were, we would get the Daily Mail and then the Sunday Times. That was our, our diet. And I would devour the Sunday Times. So I know. So it was my, exciting. It was so exciting. Well, that was when my husband... That was, Harry of course, your husband. Yes. Well, he, that era, it wasn't. I agree with you. I mean, in the same way that I wanted to be part of the New Statesman, I mean, everybody of any sort of worth kind of wanted to be part of the Sunday Times because it had that fantastic range, not only of marvelous writing, but also of just these great, important, serious exposés and it's, you know, setting the whole public agenda for stories. I mean, it was, it was a golden moment, actually, of which people still speak. When did you... When do you when did you first hear of Harry Evans? Well, as this kind of hungry fledgling journalist, you know, he was again, I mean, he was who I most wanted to meet because I wanted to be in that paper in the worst way. So, I mean, it was my absolute goal to meet him. And my agent uh, at the time, Pat Kavanagh, gave him a bunch of my pieces to read on a long train journey. And being Harry, you know, he always did sort of read stuff all the time and he read it and he thought the pieces were great and he asked me to come in and meet with him at which point zing 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 went my heart (laughs) (laughs) that is an amazing love affair an amazing love affair it lasted how many decades 40 years it was 40 years no i mean it was a great love affair i was very young you know i was 24 5 and he was 25 years older so when i look back on it you know my god it was it was a bit of a scandal really but uh, yeah, no, we just were soulmates and and had mind meld and, uh, you know, we had the most fun together knowing he was in the next room in a way, you know, even if we weren't talking to one another the entire day, it just sort of filled the house. And I see that, you know, more and more because now he's not in the next room and it all just feels colossally empty, you know, because he was such a fantastic mm. partner in fun and thought. And I mean, we just, yeah, I was very extremely lucky. He, he seemed to be constantly curious about absolutely everything and also an enth- it's kind of enthusiast. And that seemed to be the thing that he was always... And that's not... There's an Englishness that I think both you and he kind of 
butted up against, which is there are things you're supposed to say and things you aren't supposed to say. And your instinct and his was to say the things you aren't supposed to say. <laughs> he was, of course, also a working class uh, origin from the north of England. And, and you weren't, but you were a... You know, rung below the rah-rahs, as you might say. <laughs> a rung below the rah-rahs. That's a very good and... chapter heading. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, you know what I mean. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. And, uh, absolutely. No, I mean, well, Harry was just... When you yeah, get to Harry Oxford or somewhere, yeah. Harry, Harry wasn't afraid to be earnest at all. And he had this, but but he somehow had this kind of great humour with it. But but he he was passionately earnest. He was a justice seeker and a, and... And yeah, no, he found the whole kind of English sort of denial of emotion extraordinarily boring and, and you know, not something he ever, ever felt intimidated by. I think we shared that. And you also had a kind of, well, both, I think, a, a really amazing grasp of the intricacies of, of British class life. I mean, you learned it, really. I mean, I learned it at Oxford. You can tell these people very quickly and you can sort them out. And he, of course, had a, had a, had a, a particular northern aspect of, of understanding that. Do you think either those discomfort with parts of England was what brought the two of you to the United States? Is that, was that, is that a... It was definitely part of the Or was it just an accident? Look, I think it was just a mad love affair, uh, you know, which, which kind of perhaps lasted as long as it did because we did feel we had some of those kind of things in common. I mean, I just... I was a writer also who just was obsessed with people who were really good at what I most admired. And and he was, I mean, the most remarkable editor that I've ever come across. I mean, people don't realize they always praise sort of Harry for being a great investigative editor, a great campaigning editor, but he could really do everything, Harry. He could do everything. He could, you know, he could, he was a best copy editor I've ever come across. I mean, he could edit a piece in warp, at warp speed and completely sort of rewrite it without you even noticing what he cut. You know, he was that kind of editor. Mm. And, you know, he could write the headlines and he was a great, he great, he had great on photojournalism. He could choose the pictures. He could, you know, he understood production. He could, do, I mean, he was absolutely kind of polymath when it came to editing. And it was a, just awesome to see it. It was like a virtuoso. It was the sort of balance sheet of the newsroom, you know. And, and I always found that the most ginormous turn on, frankly, as, you know, someone who admired those things. And how would you compare your editing mojo with his? Different kind of, of editing, actually. I, I would always put Harry in the virtuoso class. I mean, I, I would have happily worked for him. I My whole discipline, of course, and skill was magazine editing. And I, I taught him some of that when he, for the first time, edited a magazine when he, you know, he he, he did Condé Nast Traveler. And I sort of, I taught him about how to waste space, <laughs> which is one of the things that I learned from the great Alexander Alexander. So explain what is what, it what means that it mean, waste flashing space. photographs and understanding when you can just be big and luxurious rather than trying to kind of cram everything in, which is what a newspaper editor's sort of instinct is, you know. And, you know, covers and the importance of them and just you know that but, you know, it was all, we, we had a great, we, we had a lot in common in that sense. I mean, I, I think that Vanity Fair in the 80s was sort of my sort of greatest sort of achievement as an all-round editor. Yes, Vanity Fair was a kind of, well, it's definitely a product of its age. It's, it's, it's such an amazing product of the 80s, late 80s and early 90s. And I will always remember, by the way, that cover, The Mouse That Roared, which was, that was your breakthrough piece, I think. Is that true? It was certainly the first of the big breakthrough pieces in Vanity Fair, yeah, yeah, which was me basically thinking I wanted to do, I kept hearing about that the fact that the Wales is Prince of Wales marriage to Diana was not what it had been cracked up to be. And at that time, they were still maintaining the fairy story. But I kept hearing that there were scenes and foot stamping and miseries and all kinds of fascinating stuff going backstage and I tried to kind of assign it to somebody else but in the end I thought heck I better just jump on a plane and just go and do a whip round of all the contacts I used to have at the Tatler all these ancient <laughs> duchesses and ladies in waiting and people oh, I yes, the tatler. Now, the, we, we should explain the Tatler was, was, a, was a stuffy upper class magazine until again Tina Brown came along and kicked it up the ass and became a really fun lively magazine and of course it, you had all those contacts with with the aristocracy and right the and in fact when i published the piece it was a kind of a bombshell to people that actually this marriage was a disaster in fact the waleses of uh, diana and charles did something they've i don't think they've really ever done before or since much they went on television to deny any of it was true 
which of course meant you knew it was true mm. because the only time they deny things at the palace, it seems, you know, categorically is when they are true. <laughs> and, you know, then when I met her years later, you know, in 1997, shortly before she died, actually, she kind of looked at me in a kind of knowing way and said, I'm sorry, we, you know, I'm sorry about that TV broadcast. I mean, yes, you had it right, didn't you? And I said, well, yeah, it seems like it. Well, what did you make of her as a person, Diana? I mean, I, I, I loved her, and but I can't explain exactly why. Maybe I'm just a gay man, and we we just love these creatures. But she struck struck me as, you know, this this vulnerable lamb to the slaughter that we all kind of empathized with and wanted to believe in. We wanted this amazing marriage to take place. We wanted it to to be the the fairy fairy tale thing and then of course martyrdom also adds this luster to it well i mean she was uh, absolutely compelling you know when one met her in those first years i mean she remained compelling but when i first met her she was only sort of 20 it was when she just got engaged to charles and then she was this glowing as you say vulnerable just this peachy skin and this kind of shyness and there was something incredibly translucent about her in every way and so utterly charming and then uh, of course she changed i mean she didn't never lost her charm or this extraordinary warmth that she had but she was much more by the time i met her at the end she'd become an accomplished superstar you know it was a different kind of diana which people kind of forget they tend to think she was the same all the way through she was not the same all the way through by the time she got to the end she was a very savvy media player is the truth and knew how to seduce and knew how to use the media to what she wanted to have and get and you know she deployed it brilliantly as we know i mean she went on martin bashir and did that broadcast at the end of it she had a 92 percent approval rating she really understood diana how to you know, deploy media to further what she, you know, the, the persona she wanted to project at any time. But she never lost that immense warmth about her that really was the reason she connected so much. Do you think she cared about the monarchy as an institution? Or is this something that she just felt she was so personally trashed by them that, that, it, that, that she didn't care anymore about that? I think she cared a lot. As a matter of fact, um, you know, it's at the moment you get a lot of people saying, a lot of people say to me, well, she must really understand, you know, Harry leaving and so on. I don't think she would have encouraged Harry to leave, actually. I think that she would have understood why he hated it. But we mustn't forget that Diana only left, quote, the sort of the royal family because she had to. She was divorced. I mean, her beef mainly was that her husband wasn't in love with her and was in love with somebody else. If he'd stayed in love with her, I think that, you know, she wouldn't necessarily have bolted for the exit because she understood very deeply, you know, what kind of a platform that was. She understood, you know, when she shook hands with the AIDS, AIDS patient in, in Middlesex Hospital, I think it was 1986, the fact she was operating inside the monarchy, in fact, the fact that she was, you know, right in there as a royal is what helped to give that gesture its extraordinary global potency, you know. And I don't think that's quite something that the Sussexes now understand, that, you know, for all the miseries of being there, and there really, I think, are just, I think it's just hideous being in that family, frankly. But it also has remarkable, you know, spotlight and, and you know, gravitas uh, and, and, you know, ability to, 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 you know, further something you believe in, which if you do, which Diana had many causes and she really did believe in. Being part of the monarchy was, of course, you know, unbeatable, really. She wanted to keep her HRH, don't forget her, her Royal Highness title. She didn't want to get rid of it. They took it off her, but she fought for it. Yeah, there's this, there's, there's this sort of a charisma that comes from institutional, inherited, traditional forms. And then there is the Hollywood kind of charisma, which is totally invented and, and, can, and is based upon popular acclaim. And what she did, I think almost uniquely, I can think of very few people who also, she married the two. She was able yeah. to put Hollywood charisma into this ancient institution that, that obviously I think made, made her astonishingly powerful. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and, it was a unique I mean, thing I, and she, I, she, without ever losing or sort of tarnishing the royal bit. That was the thing. I mean, she didn't become less, you know, she didn't make it cheap in any way. It just, she just simply mega, mega sort of wattage the, you know, the, the, the offering, if you like, of royalty. She was, she was iconic for people. And it's so, I mean, I've always 
found this astonishing about the English upper classes, really, and the monarchy, and so, is their global brand is really powerful. <laughs> I don't know why the Japanese want to live like English aristocrats or White Downton Abbey <laughs> is the most it's this hideously yeah. boring lifestyle imaginable, but it is it has enormous appeal, and she kind of understood that intuitively. But in some ways, wasn't in some ways, I felt that meant that she had she as a monarch, uh, uh, part of the monarchy, was completely overwhelming everyone else in it. Uh, well, that's and, the thing. I mean, that was what was so incredibly rattling to them. I mean, my book, you know, I talk uh, say that the that after she died, the mantra in Buckingham Palace, the Queen's mantra, was never again. By which she meant we can never have somebody whose spotlight, whose charisma, whose you know celebrity is such that she develops essentially a rival power center to the monarchy. You know, I mean, it was terrifying for them to see yes. that. She just, I mean, by the time Diana died, nobody cared about any of the rest of them. No, no. I mean, even the Queen just, you know, if Diana had a new updo the day of the opening of Parliament, the Queen's traditional picture on the front page of like traveling to, you know, the opening of Parliament in a golden cage, no, gone. It would be, you know, unbelievable spreads about Diana's new hairdo, you know, and, um, and well, well, she didn't like queen, that. Well, shouldn't, in our sometimes our view of the Queen, it should be way above caring about that but of, of course she's a human being too and i don't think anyone cares above it i think that that's the thing the myth is the myth is that she wouldn't care about it but i think that the, all of them care about where they're placed yeah the other thing that struck me from the book is that and from diana as well as other figures is that women women are the center of your story they're the power brokers in a way they're the people creating this institution, destroying it, attempting it. And there is something odd about the British monarchy in it. It's always had this strong female content. I mean, uh, whether it's Elizabeth I, Victoria, Elizabeth II, these are long, long reigning, iconic, nation identity forming monarchs. And they're all women. Yeah. Well, I mean, women turn out to be very, very good at, at this job, right? <laughs> I mean, the three you mentioned are the sort of most famous defining monarchs, you know, that really in the entire sort of British history. I mean, maybe, I mean, Henry VIII is famous for quite different reasons. They are very good at it. I think it's partly because, you know, Bill Clinton once famously said, and, and you know, he should know because he was the opposite. He said, women have the responsibility gene. And I do think that that's sort of yeah. true, is that the women, you know, they're not as distracted by the mistresses and the money and all the rest of it most of the time. They somehow just bite it off and regard it as something they have to sort of march on and do. And, you know, the three of them have. And Elizabeth II, I mean, 70 years. I mean, she's been on the money for 70 years, if you can imagine. And uh, uh, this is incredible. Uh, and I think that it will be a giant void when, you, when she goes, because there is a kind of feeling of, you know, how do we, how, how do people think about being British anymore, you know, when she's gone, because she has come to epitomize the, the nation's identity in such a profound way. And it's going to be quite hard for Charles, I think, to, you know, to pick that up. Yes. I, obviously, having watched The Crown, as we all have, <laughs> I assume, there's still a mystery at the heart of Elizabeth Windsor, as it were. I, 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 mean, they, I think you saw the actresses that played her exactly portray that responsibility gene, as it were. But I, I could never fully figure out what's going on underneath. But we and, don't know. That's yeah. her mystique. I mean, we still to this day have no idea what she thinks about anything. I mean, she has managed to maintain the discipline of never letting us know. I mean, to this, to this day, we have no idea what she thought about Brexit, for instance, for or against. No idea. Um, Isn't that... Know, I, incredibly liberating in a way the, yeah. the, because everybody down to the, the local shop market owner has a blog now and a tweet about everything we know everybody's thoughts about every single thing we're we're exhausted by the details of everyone's private life we just I, at some <laughs> some level i'm just like oh please but this woman i mean the, the sheer discipline in some ways that kind of i remember I remember when Trump was first elected and the crown was on, and I remember watching the crown, the early parts of it, and observing that this was the antithesis. This was all about not show. It was all about restraint. It was all about the institution. It was all about the constitution. And not just we don't know her opinion about Brexit. We, we, she's never really crossed any constitutional lines that could have. Mm -hmm. And there have been plenty of moments when it could have happened. And I think it's, 
And I think the English understand this. I think they do. And I think there's a huge respect for that. Yeah, uh, it's the self-discipline. It's that self-discipline. And, you know, we already know a huge amount about Charles, by contrast. I mean, you know, we know pretty much everything about Charles. There is absolutely zero mystique. And even the Cambridges, although they're trying very hard to kind of hew to the kind of less is more line, they've still said more than we ever, ever learned about the Queen. I mean, William, we still, you know, he's talked a lot about his mother. He's just never, you know, from the Queen. And I think as such, I don't know whether that mystique, you know, is going to ever be able to have the potency because most of the Queen's mystique is that two things, really, the, the sort of circles of history that surround her. I mean, starting, you know, she's known 14 prime ministers beginning with Winston Churchill, but also this thing that she remains inscrutable. And I don't know whether it's possible to be inscrutable anymore in the media age that we live in. And of course, less inscrutable than she was before. I mean, there's that moment in the 70s, was it the 70s, yes, where they had that first documentary about the royal family at home. It's the most excruciating thing you ever saw in your life. And but they're trying. They are. Do you remember? It was just something. Yes, absolutely. Their desperate first uh, attempt to be relatable. Yes, they were all sitting on the same couch, carefully looking at the television, and just like, oh no, poor, poor things. But I still, you know, and I'm trying to think myself about this, I, I, I still love the monarchy. I always did. There's something about it. There's something about its connection to the past that, that just anchors a country. You're right. It's, for a woman, for a person, a human being, a woman, to really be that source of intimate support and understanding of your country for so long, for my grandparents, as well as my parents, as well as for me and my grand and my, my nieces and nephews. It's, and there's something about that that's just England itself. And that's an amazing strength that monarchy has as a, as a, as a concept. It's a, yeah, they're the it, thread. It takes that pulls a us nation together. and puts it in a person. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly right. Um, and, and, and you know, you also have to consider what we'd be without them instead, right? I mean, I, I don't think if you look around, there's anything much better out there. At least, you know, the monarchy is a kind of safe space, if you like, to use that term, of sort of composure and nonpartisanness sort of at the top of a country, which at a time of enormous turbulence seems even more valuable, really, if, if Charles can somehow sustain anything like what she was able to do. Well, he won't, right? He's just going to sit there frumpily on the throne, well, right? With Camilla, who does anybody like? I mean, I love Camilla's chop. Camilla's supposedly her. a really lovely person. I love I'm, Camilla. I'm, 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 explain why you love Camilla. She's salty and funny and stoic and unpretentious and amusing. You know, I think she's got, I think she's a very, very, as they say, good egg, Camilla. And she herself has actually, <laughs> in a way, got quite a lot of mystique because no one knows anything about Camilla, as a matter of fact. And she's never spoken mm -hmm. to anybody about anything, actually. I mean, she's been very, very self-disciplined herself. When you consider how much she must have ached to just get out there and say, look, it's not like this at all. You know, I mean, ugh, it was a nightmare for Charles to be married to Diana. And, you know, I mean, she must have longed to say those things. And she never has. And she just stuck it out, now has been married to Charles longer than Diana, and just simply is proven to be very stoic, doing all the things she's supposed to do. She's she's accomplished. She's gracious. gracious. I mean, I think she's going to be quite beloved, actually, as a, as, as the next queen. Consort. Yeah, that, <laughs> certainly, that certainly would be. That's what she's going to be called, queen consort. Queen consort, yeah. Yeah, that would be the, the correct thing. Yeah, no, that's... You can see that with her. And again, that kind of, that's an upper class thing, right? I mean, that, that's something that, that they sort of learn how to, how to. Well, it is really. I mean, her father, you know, Bruce, Major Bruce Strand, who's one of my favorite characters in the book, because he's just such yes. a sort of greatest generation sort of hero, but with so much charm, marvelous man, actually. And, you know, when all the press were hounding around the, her door, Camilla, at the time when those tapes were released, which had Charles talking dirty to her on the phone, were released. Oh, that was so gross. It was so I gross. Mean, I'm the, so and gross and her, fa her, her father came out of the house and said to the journalists, you know, they all thought he was going to make a statement. He said, in our family, you know, we've been born to, we keep our traps shut. Thank you very much, gentlemen, and good morning. You know, <laughs> and that is just very much how she was brought up. Right. 
And you know, there's you can always keep your mouth shut. It's a, it's an un. Now the one question I have to I've always asked myself the last few years is, did Meghan ever watch The Crown? Did she, I mean, <laughs> at at what level did she not understand what the deal was, and what level of narcissism is required to get in there, become your perfect princess, and then whine? And storm out. Is that? I mean, that's my view of Megan. Now, maybe, maybe I'm I think. A look, I think that it's really, really hard to be in that setup. And you know, Diana, for instance, you know, didn't find it easy, and she was the daughter of courtiers, you know, and 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 three generations of courtiers in the so she absolutely understood the royal situation and atmosphere. But she also found it extraordinarily difficult. I think that Meghan really was utterly sort of wrong about what she expected. You know, her, her, she just had it all completely wrong. She really thought she bought into the whole public uh, sort of charisma of the royals. I mean, she brought into the notion of palaces and huge immediate global fame and an ability to, in a sense, uh, bring spotlight like Diana did to the causes that she cared about. But the truth is, as we learn or we know, and you and I know, we've, we've known it for years. I mean, being inside there is a really boring, grim, sort of penny-ante lifestyle <laughs> a lot of the time. I mean, you know, there's just um, a lot of stuff on the, in the diary you really just don't want to do all the time, endlessly. And she just wasn't, she didn't really consider that the rewards for that, and there are other big rewards. I mean, the rewards are that you really do have that kind of uh, convening power. You do have that spotlight. You do have that eternal respect, et cetera, et cetera. But she wanted everything now. I mean, I, she wanted that celebrity buffet that was offered around and which she felt she couldn't help herself to unless she left. And I personally think she will come to see that that celebrity buffet also was a big mirage, you know, that if you go the entertainment route, then essentially you are going to be judged by that whole ethos. And that means getting a ton of money from an entertainment company like Netflix means you also have to deliver hits. You've got to produce. You've got, I mean, it's really hard to produce hits. It's quite, it's difficult. There are plenty. And any movie star will tell you there is no way you could just legislate for success with that kind of a deal. You have to keep, you have to be lucky. You have to find the right things. You have to have a, it's hard to create successful entertainment and you're going to be judged by your last hit. And if you have a several, several flops, I mean, she's already had her own show canceled. That happens all the time in entertainment. And, you know, you're, it's very, very ephemeral. And you can suddenly find that you've slipped right down to being a kind of B-list celebrity. And if you're royal, you can be as dull as you want forever. No one's going to no not invite you if you're a royal. No one's going to not have you top of the bill if you're a royal. You're going to be welcomed everywhere, even if, you know, you're the lowest common denominator in the royal family. So, you know, I think she's going to have some tough, you know, realizations ahead, as is Harry. Yeah, they're going to, there's going to be a moment, surely, when either that marriage breaks up or something happens, right? I mean, I, Harry, Harry feels a little estranged out here. He doesn't seem a natural American to me, but maybe I, I don't know. Obviously, I don't know him from Adam, but does, do, do you sense that that might happen at some point? I mean, I think he's utterly, incredibly, you know, involved with Meghan. And I think, I don't know, he's got these two gorgeous children. I think that there'll be a big, you know, I think the relationship, mm. the the family is something that's hugely important to him, not to mention the fact that he'd have to admit, essentially, that things were not what he expected, which I think he'd find very hard to do. He does seem all over the place at the moment. And you sort of see why they found it so hard to kind of manage Harry quite honestly, because you know, freed from any sort of palace structure, he seems to be just going off in every direction and sort of rattling around without any particular focus. I mean, he he just doesn't seem to me to be anchored in anything real at the moment. But you know, he has got his Invictus Games, which is a genuinely great idea, I think, and one that he was his idea, and I think he showed he had a lot of flair in doing that, but everything else seems to me to be... Maybe our listeners don't know what the Invictus Games are. What what, what are they? They're the, the Invictus they're military, Games are, are his... They are Harry, who was a, a, you know, did serve, you know, in the military for 10 years, very bravely on the front line in Africa and Afghanistan at one point. He created this kind of Special Olympics for veterans, essentially. There's been, I think, three of them now. They've been very successful, and it's a very moving and genuinely sort of connective 
event, probably the most successful royal initiative we've seen and, you know, I could even think of for decades. So he's obviously got a lot of flair, Harry, but he needs the palace too what? to kind of pick and choose what he does. William, for his part, I'm struck by the poise that he has, especially given that he and Harry both went through extraordinary trauma as, as, as kids. I mean, having your mother killed so publicly and, and having to grieve so publicly must have marked both of them, I would think, quite deeply. But Harry seems to have been less able to, to channel that into, into discipline, as it were. Well, I think look, poor Harry, really, and I do feel, I have a lot of empathy for Harry. I really do. I mean, he has the curse of the second son, right? I mean, he comes out of the army, which had all this structure, which held him in place, you know, essentially, and really created a hiding place for him, essentially. So he comes out of the army after 10 years, and then he's confronted with the fact that actually his entire role for the rest of his life is to be of declining importance, as his brother, you know, who will be king, you know, has three children, and he just goes down and down, and he'll be less and less important. And it's a kind of demoralizing thing to know that your destiny is to sink, right? And he also missed so much the structure and the discipline of, 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 the, of the military. And really, he sort of went off a cliff. William has always had the, you know, no, his knowledge of his destiny. Now, you know, it could have been that he'd kick mm -hmm. against it and say, look, I don't want to know what my destiny is. I don't want, you know, I don't want to be stuck in this inevitable route to the crown. But he has got a temperament which is much more composed than than Harry. He's a he's a more he's rather a judicious character. He's you know he's he's much more like his his grandmother the Queen than anybody else. He's quite similar in some ways to Elizabeth. Patient, prepared to play the long game. You know, made his wife Kate you know wait ten years of dating her before he decided that she really could handle things and asked her to marry him. So he's a kind of judicious character. Good a good thing for a future king. And, you know, he's been willing to sort of to understand what's ahead of him and, and embrace it, essentially. So in that sense, I think the British monarchy is rather lucky that, you know, the firstborn son has has that kind of temperament. And even more startling is the fact that Kate, you know, who, who was a middle class origins of middle class origins, you know, had not to the manor born in any sense, has turned out to be, I mean, in 2011, when he married her, the question was, uh, you know, can somebody of Kate's background, you know, adapt and become a future queen? And now the question is like, what in the hell would the House of Windsor do without her? Because she he seems to be temperamentally incredibly unusual in being willing to live this life that, you know, and, and do it all and do it extremely well and to do it with charm and grace and, and beauty, as well as being, it seems, you know, an extremely warm mother of three. It's just a remarkable thing, really, that that he found her when he did, when they were both at university, which is perhaps the only reason he was able to find her. Yeah. And those marriages matter so much. I mean, Desperately. They, they, I mean, they, it, without Philip, Elizabeth would have, would have had a much harder time. And indeed, look at George VI with, you know, Elizabeth, who became right. the Queen Mother eventually. I mean, she stabilized him. He was a shy, stammering kind of second son who wound up getting to be king because his brother abdicated. And, and, and you know, Elizabeth, his wife, was the one who sort of guided and soothed and advised and kept him in place and made him quite different and a much better king during World War II than he ever would have been without her. What do you think of Americans' attachment to the monarchy? It, 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 it's, 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 it's really... Very widespread. I mean, in ways that one would should not expect in a country that was obviously founded on the rejection of monarchy. Now, obviously, this is not the same monarchy; it's a very different one. But they, they, they are they lap it up in a way that just mystifies me. Like maybe because we're both English, and so we, I, 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 you know, I got my Duke of Edinburgh award, and I went up to Buckingham Palace when I was seventeen or whenever it was. I wouldn't have seen you as an outward bound type, Andrew. Oh no, I was. It was not. It was not my. It was not my <laughs> finest hour, stuck in the middle of the mountains of Wales in the pouring rain. It's always packed raining. Up a tent. Oh, yes. But anyway, I got through. I got to see it. I walked into this unbelievably drafty, old, somewhat decrepit palace. You know, it's not, it's, it felt a little tatty when I went there, a little cold. But so I guess I see it from the inside, even though I'm a, definitely a monarchist. I, 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 I'm a Tory in that sense, always have been. But, but Americans have this passion for it. It's probably a passion for something because they can't have it. Exactly. I think it's the sort of the glamour and the mystique of this uh, one thing that they can't 
you know, America can't have, which is, you know, a king. And I, of course, I think the mystique of them being out of reach is so kind of now particularly so kind of antipathetic to everything America stands for. I mean, you know, America is all about sharing, isn't it? And, you know, sharing and telling and, and expressing and your point of view, as you said at the beginning, you know, about everything. And you just, you know, you can you can project onto these people anything you want, essentially, mm. because even at their most torpid, if they don't really say much. Yes, I wonder, I just, I'm, I've, I've been thinking about this on and off, but what emotional impact the death of Elizabeth will have? And, I, and maybe you could compare it in your thought to what happened when Diana died, because that was a that was an extraordinary moment of collective hysteria in Britain. I, I, one can't imagine a similar thing, but it'll be bigger, I think, and deeper than that. Well, I think with Diana, it was really this sense of a strong emotional connection that had been she forged with people, a sense that she'd sort of liberated everyone who'd ever felt that they were a minority, essentially, from the sort of coldness of the stiff upper lip, if you like. I mean, she made that lip tremble, you know, and that's, I think, why people were so desperate in their mourning. But I think with Elizabeth, it's quite something else. You know, I think it is this sense of Britain shrinking and shrinking all the time. Much of her reign has really been a retreat from Britain's powers. But somehow the fact she was there kind of kept everyone feeling that it was still mighty in its own way. Once she's gone, you know, that connection with history that sense of in Britain of itself, as we are a strong, you know, stoic, globally important enterprise, will feel so kind of rattled, you know, by her departure. And a sense of like yet another comfort zone has gone, you know, at a time when everybody feels under attack, whether it's, you know, the digital disruption, the war in Ukraine, the, you know, economic uncertainties, all of these things are very, it's a very turbulent moment. And finally, this great comfort of knowing that she's there in a strange way. I mean, people joke about keep calm and carry on, but that has been her ethos. And it's an ethos that I think Britain likes to feel is its own ethos. But really, you know, I think without her, there'll be a real sense of panic, actually, a lot of the time. I think that people are going to feel very, very rattled by it. I'm been thinking a little bit about that, about a, a country that willingly gives up power, or in some ways unwillingly, although it divested itself of it relatively swiftly, actually, compared to others. And I, But countries that have known greatness that are shrinking, and I, I think of Russia, and you see how the psyche of humiliation, of national decline, can lead to irrational cray-cray, like he's doing now in Ukraine, this, this sense of Russia, 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 the meaning of Russia. Yeah. And it's still very powerful because the alternative, which is I'm just a consumer in the global marketplace, it's just not emotionally satisfying. And it's not, right. it doesn't give you a sense of identity and meaning. And the Brits, I mean, I, my own feeling is that this is what Brexit was really about. I mean, who knows? We could argue forever what it was about. But one aspect that it was about, I think, was the sense that if we are just, when I say we, I mean the British, if, if we're just a sort of province of a European Union, from having been a global empire, bar none, that is too much. It's, it's just too much loss. We have to have some sense of our own ownership. We have to have some sense that we're still an independent country capable of making our own decisions, identify with a certain culture. You see all this with also mass immigration that's unsettled people's sense of what England is like. I mean, the London that you go to today compared to the London you left in 1984, the difference is simply shocking right or am i am i well it is I, but in between there was that period which i call in the book you know peak london which was that 2000 and sort of 11 2009 to 2000 and sort of 14 15 period before brexit where it was a very it had a, this incredibly sort of international global feeling that was very different indeed from the 80s period but also but felt i found very exciting i thought that it felt that britain had suddenly become like the capital of europe which to me was I did very, too. it was a very exciting thing and that has really changed i mean now there is a kind of sense that that's all gone away i mean i never expected that to happen i thought it would go on you know accumulating instead of which they 
have decided, it seems, to just regress completely from that and get smaller. And there is, I think, a sense that, you know, when the queen dies as well, it's a further shrinking, actually. Mm. And, you know, so that's one of the things I think that certainly what that's my perception as a sort of American when I go. But I'm sure there are many others who feel that after Brexit, it feels much more liberated and British. But I don't see it myself. Well, I... I'm haunted by something my brother said about London when I went to visit a, a few years back, actually. And I said I was going to London. And he was like, oh, London, well, it's not really our capital anymore, is it? it, it it's, it's, a, it's sort of European capital. It's a global capital. It's this multicultural. 40% of Londoners aren't born in the United Kingdom. That's kind of a staggering thing for London. It's, it was a very yeah. new thing for London. Britain has never been an actual, until very recently, Britain was never a, a magnet for immigrants. It was a magnet in which people left Britain. Right. It wasn't one in which people surged to, to immigrate unless they were in deep trouble. That's so right. I, one can, and one cannot confuse and, but, London with the rest of the country. No, it's, 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 it's an extraordinarily different. Uh, and I felt like when I, when I left, the London I left was from a, a very different country than the one I went to. And now when I go from one blue city in America to London, I, I feel like it's pretty close. And, you know, it does feel very much like a Boston or a Washington or, or I mean, obviously it's of its own kind, but it's, it has the same upper cognitive elite, multiculturalism, cultural openness and all the rest of it. I haven't noticed, and I'm going to go back again at some point to check exactly how, I mean, there hasn't been a mass emigration from London, particularly it's still pretty international, but it probably doesn't have that feeling anymore of being this this global. Although that's what Boris wants, right? What do you make of Boris Johnson? Well, Boris, I mean, you know, the thing about Boris is, you know, he. I never bought into this kind of jokey. To me, it was always the most annoying part of the upper classes, this sort of, let's for goodness sake, never take anything seriously affect, which Boris absolutely epitomizes. And, you know, now he's trying to graft it you know, the, now he's trying to graft his sort of Churchillian fantasies onto how he handles Ukraine. And to me, I mean, I I think he's a ridiculous figure. Uh, I you know, I just do not feel that Boris has what it takes to be a prime minister. And I think he's most of the time embarrassing, actually. But you know, not that I can see any other leader that I think would you know come up and change the feeling. But he, you know, most of the time he actually embarrasses me and even though I, I do understand his appeal. I do understand his appeal, and he can be very, very endearing. Certainly when you meet him personally, he is. But it's just not what we need right now. What we do need is something it's hard to figure out. But I think it's time that, that Britain needs to take itself a bit more seriously if it wants to be regarded on the world stage. Well, you have um, the opposition leader, Keir Starmer, who's definitely anything, is definitely earnest, it appears. He's just taken a big risk today we're, we're we're talking money where Keir Starmer has there were some rumors about him having an impromptu party during covid where he had a beer with some fellow campaign co-workers and this of course is a scandal because Boris Johnson did obviously much worse things in Downing Street and in contrast with Boris Starmer has said if I am if the police find me for this I will resign my position yeah that so was a huge he's taking out well, he could he could go. He uh, could go. He absolutely could. I know that was really so. There's there's an interesting. Yeah, it's probably it's probably more high ground you should never take in politics, right? Because it'll probably lead to your impending doom. But it shows that Keir, I think, understands exactly what you were pointing at. We need we need seriousness, some gravity. I think or, we do right what's now. What's also true about yeah, though it's also true about England, is it not? that they never take, I mean, there's some mystique about never taking anything seriously. It's the same mystique as we never work too hard. It's this, it's this upper class notion. We can joke our way and fumble our way through, through shit because we just, we're the, we're born to rule. And that is incredibly frustrating, but it is very appealing. People, the British, the worst thing you can say about, about somebody in England, I think, is they don't have a sense of humor. Well, that's right. And I have to say that I do love that about the Brits. I mean, I laugh more there than any other place. And, you know, this was one of the things that, in a sense, Meghan was so kind of dismayed by was it's a very iconoclastic culture. I mean, you know, at yeah. its best, it's it's just will not take 
you know, snobs and posers, you know, pompous people remotely seriously. They just will not do it. It is, I think, a pretty healthy strand in the in the British culture. But of course, a lot of Americans find it very off-putting because they're used to getting a far less ironic treatment, you know, in the American presses. And they suddenly get written up in England as sort of just, there's just no reverence, whatever, you know. So I go from loving it, frankly, to at times being frustrated by it. But it is definitely part of the DNA of the country. And nothing, nothing is going to change that. They drag everyone down. And there is, <laughs> everyone is mocked. Everyone oh. is mocked. I mean, Private yeah. Eye, Private Eye is, I mean, you must love Private Eye. It's a fantastic magazine, a little magazine. It muckrakes. It has incredibly dirty and bad jokes on the cover. It's, 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 and yeah, one, 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 I want that, obviously, because, our, you know, Orwell's great comment was that England would never become a fascist country because if people frog march down the street, English, the English would giggle. And you see <laughs> something like in Prime Minister's Question Time. I mean, the jokes that go flying around, I mean, it's great to hear it. And I mean, this, I mean, the pretentiousness and the portentousness of the presidential press conference here. I mean, you oh, couldn't God, get yes. away with it in the, in the UK. No. You have people just lobbing, lobbing their, their, you know, their sort of irreverence at you. And nothing is going to st stop that in England. And I do think it's a kind of hugely healthy survival kind of gene in the country to have such until it, until it becomes its own, until it becomes its own reward. I mean, like the union, I, when I was a, were you did you debate in the union? The Oxford union no, I was never a debater. Actually, no, I was. I was. I, you know, I was anything that the, right. the mag. You know, I was. I was on the magazine, but not not a debater. Well, one thing I learned debating there with people like Boris and etc. was that you know, you really only won arguments with jokes, and it yeah. kind of depressed me. The thing that most affected me when I came to America was that people actually think things are at stake, things matter. Yeah. That there are sort of primary color arguments. I mean. The debate we're now having about abortion in America may be horrifying, but it's real. I mean, yes. it's a real issue that's being thrashed out in a way that would never. And I felt that same way about gay rights in Britain, that essentially the British would forever be able to euphemize and double entendre and joke themselves out of confronting that inequality. And as long as you were allowed to be the opera uh, colonist, you'd be, you'd be fine. But oh, again, right. they, did, they, did, they did get through it. How do you feel about that subject? Of gay rights. I mean, you, you, you. Well, I'm fearful right now because if they can do the Supreme Court can do this uh, on the abortion, I mean, what's next? You know. Well, I, mean, I have a gay son, so I care very much about it, yeah. and it's very painful, you know, when you see places and institutions that still don't acknowledge or or understand how profound it is in terms of social justice. How has that been? For you, understanding gay people, and uh, it must have. Oh, I just feel you know. Look, I, I'm as I say, I grew up in a, in a, in a household yeah. where my father was in movies, and so we always had a big kind of gay component to their social life. So I've always, and so many of my friends are, and you know, have always been actually. So I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I just it makes me just. It's a harder life in many ways for for my son, I mean, you know, because he has also suffers from Asperger's, and and you know, having having to, to sort of try to make a relationship, it's so hard for him to master, you know, what the rules are, etc. And yeah, I know I think it's um I think it, it can be a much harder life actually to lead, you know, because finding a partner is is just so difficult. It it is. Men are also just difficult. I mean <laughs> there you said one it. of the things that is one of the things that's understated, especially in emotional life, that first of all men are much more liable to be sexually adventurous, therefore put two of them in a relationship, the strains on it are always higher than with a man and a woman, simply because the woman is capable of more self-restraint than the man in almost all circumstances. That's why we're not at all worried about lesbian marriages falling apart or massive outbreaks of STDs among lesbians is, aren't going to happen. But also the lack of the general male aversion to commitment is, is, you know, is universal. It's not like right. gay men are any different than men. And I think people forget that that makes even if you even if you don't not dealing with something like asperger's or with 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 anything else it, it just makes even the most successful and put together person it's hard and and they don't always succeed uh, obviously they don't and it's 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 difficult why one would want to make it harder 
by, by not giving people institutions like marriage to encourage and to sustain them uh, is beyond me. But we seem to have moved mercifully beyond that argument. It's amazing the speed with which people have moved. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I think one of the most kind of fascinating things is, is how, how in the end, for years, it was such a logjam. And then all of a sudden, when it opened up, it just became this fantastic floodgate and changed the attitudes of an entire generation, just sort of almost not overnight, but you know, very quickly. Pretty close. My theory about that, for example, is that we were already in every family. We were already very powerful in every institution so that we actually had the key to our own liberation. If we just came out and started living that way, then suddenly everything would fall. I, and so I always thought it would happen quite quickly once it happened. It was a question of getting to that point where you just said, I'm not ashamed anymore, and therefore I want to live my life like anybody else. Well, um, the, the, the piece about Ed Koch's you know, yeah, lack of you, being yeah. able to, it was very, I found, you know, affecting and awful and sad that this man was locked up all of his life. And, you know, and, and in the end, of course, he paid the price of feeling so lonely at the end. I remember one of my weirdest experiences, you must have had me like this in your life, is I was actually invited with Marty Peretz to dinner at Ed Koch's like 20, 25 years ago or whenever. I mean, God knows what I was doing there, but I was obviously this little goyish gay. And it was a round table and it was all men and all super Jewy. And, and all they did was talk about Koch. And at the end, Koch put on one of his own speeches and asked us to watch it. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> That's tragic. No life. No life at all. <laughs> That's it's tragic. really horrible. And I, I, just, I just felt nothing but pity. I could, never, I could never summon up hatred for people who lived lives like that because they were their own deepest enemy. And, 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 and not allowing happiness to be an option for them was... Yeah was I saw it in the, and this is why I wasn't going to do it. I saw it in front of me. I saw it in the, right. in the priests and the professors and all these people that mm -hmm. were, were slowly dead inside. And growing up in that time, I was like, well, I, no, I don't want to live like that. I do right. not want, I do not want to be condescended to. I do not want everyone else to know who I am, but I won't admit it. These are humiliating experiences. Yes, because everybody always does actually know. I mean, that was true of Lord Brown in England, who was, you know, CEO of, uh, you know, BP, you know, for years he'd locked himself in this kind of, you know, closet. Of course, everybody understood and knew what really, you know, and, and they didn't, they didn't mind or they wouldn't care. You know, <laughs> the person who cared was him. So when growing up, we had, out, it was we a had huge Ted Heath. relief. Yeah, we had Ted Heath and Jeremy Thorpe when we were coming up, the leaders of the Tory and the Liberal Party, both gay men. Nothing could be ever acknowledged until, of course, Thorpe got himself involved. Do you know, one last question. Journalism. We've, we've, the two of us have lived an adult life, which has seen this, our entire industry completely revolutionized in a way that previous editors in previous years haven't quite seen by technology. Is there, do you have any hope for quality, smart, interesting, lively journalism? And, and do you have any hope for the resurrection of something like a magazine? Or is this going to happen spontaneously online? I mean, we've been through the most terrible kind of dark you know, 15 years, I think, with journalism in the sense of you just seeing this endless downward spiral where every story is about cutting, cutting, reducing, reducing, cutting, cutting, so that you see great journalists writing for sort of pennies, you know, instead of a proper livelihood, which I think is the saddest part of what's happened to so many great sort of practitioners just not having a platform which pays enough for them to do it properly. That's the biggest issue. I do think with, you know, new initiatives like Substack, which you know, you're on, there's suddenly a way to make money, which I think is a great thing for the quality of journalism. The problem is focus, that's all. I mean, there are so many great pieces being kind of pumped out, but finding them, you know, getting to them, having them hit enough people all at once, even though social media, of course, can, you know, promulgate them in ways that were much bigger than their original and the original audiences of a magazine or a newspaper. But because it doesn't all hit you the same time in a way that's coherent, you don't have the same impact hitting you. And that is the real problem is how do you get, how do you create impact that isn't sort of serial or kind of viral in its, in its sort of long rollout? You really want to be able to hit people through the eyes and say, listen to me, you know, this is happening right now. And we don't have that, I think, uh, anywhere yet. Because 
you're you're talking about the absence of editors, um, people who could say this group of writers matters, right? This issue matters. I've made it the cover. It's right. coming at you this week. Right. Uh, that's what you did. That's what you did. Your well, whole I mean, life. that is what uh, all editors and are. you were able to create impact. Well, I yeah, but you were particularly a genius at it, Tina. I mean, listen to me. I mean, you were able to pull that off week after week. I mean, that was really quite remarkable. And you would, and also you would at the last minute just throw things up in the air and remix them so that they'd meet what you thought was the exact moment. And people bought it because they were buying in part your judgment. They were buying in part the judgment of an individual person to say, okay. Now, today, they're terrified of what Twitter's going to say. They may take down a piece because of Twitter. There's none of that editorial. Well, that, that I think is a, I think that's a lack. I, I do. I mean, I think the ability to sort of make people, the kind of, the editor as an entrepreneur, sort of an, an, impres, an impresario in a sense, as an intellectual impresario, basically saying, I decide that I want you to all look at this and a certain trust that builds between, you know, the taste and judgment of that, you know, People learn to trust it and think, well, if it's there, it must be good. You know, that's, I think, some really what's what's missing. I, I keep trying to think about what could replace that. That's the biggest question is not numbers, not volume, not the ability to write great stuff, not the ability even now to sort of try to get rewarded for it. Because Substack, you know, there's this new business model which shows that that is so. It's the impact that's the that's missing. It's that yeah. unified moment of where everybody's paying attention. Yeah, individual writers can now, if we're lucky, and build an audience, we can actually then get paid the way we used to be paid, which is... Yeah. And when you talk to Hamish and Chris and the other people who run Substack, and one of the most impressive things, so they've been talking to me for, for quite a while, many years before it actually happened, and one thing that, one thing that they, they believed was that writers should be paid well. Yeah. They actually believe. And there's something about a culture that says, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, of course, at the New Republic in the old days, I would have to beg people to write for 20 cents a word. But you always had the ability to find some very rich person <laughs> to dole out lots of money for these literary events to continue. And of course, you also had the old model of exclusive print advertising, which, of course, has completely destroyed that model. But, uh, well, I've done both, actually. Uh, I mean, Tatler and yeah. the Daily Beast were both kind of begging operations, you know. So, you know, people will write in a place for nothing if they really believe they're going to have the impact. The problem is, isn't it with no money and no impact? That <laughs> That's a very bad combination of things. That was the reason we could get people to do it, because they knew at least that everybody, there's nothing more heady for a writer than to know they're, they're going to come out, it's going to hit people, and everyone they know and everyone they don't know is going to be talking about it. That writers will do a lot yeah. for not much money if they think they're going to have that. No, I know that feeling. It's a wonderful <laughs> feeling. I remember you did it. That you did. Uh, it and it's a terrifying. Well, we did also. You know, I remember. Yeah, and then people will be talking about it for the next week. They'll be exactly. fighting over it. Why the sure. hell did they run that? And why? And we were not afraid that people would say that's outrageous. We were happy to have that because it I was. Know part of the conversation and I would make sure the next week there was a letter in the magazine saying you're full of shit for these reasons because why not but the idea we were trying not to offend anyone would have killed I know the, de the, the deadly timidity at the moment of, of fear of, of you know of a boomerang hitting you but because it's become so incredibly destructive and because frankly you know you you know when people get quote cancelled now that they, they really their their livelihood you know is seriously seriously curtailed i mean you know they're dropped from their you know we all know writers who've been not just dropped by an outlet or just not just kind of excoriated but dropped from their teaching jobs dropped by their publishers dropped by their speaking gigs i mean you're left with no livelihood so it's a, right. it is actually doing a, things a, that we a scary were, we... thing what's scary to me is that the editors are not standing up for their writers that, that a writer will publish a, a controversial piece that an editor will have written, and then they will wait and see what Twitter says, and then they might silence them or, or, or fire them or tell them to Absolutely. tone it. They won't actually. It used to be a, a rule of absolute iron rule. The editor would go to bat for right. his or her writer. No, I agree. They don't. And now they absolutely don't. They just dump you. They just, they just throw you under the bus. And I see it particularly with, I'm shocked always when publishers do that, particularly. It's like, this is insane. Oh, I, I mean, a publisher is just like canceling books if there's someone's had a bad Twitter moment, you know? I mean, uh, it, it's very, very concerning. And I don't see kind of enough free speech defense of that, you know? I mean, where's Penn? 
Wow. I just find the I find editors lacking balls. I, 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 they should be speaking out against this. They should be reassuring their writers. You're going to be okay. I remember when Kinsley, of course, Mike Kinsley was a god, and he's a god. Oh, he was. He is. He is absolutely. He was the absolute defender of his writers, and and just would publish anything that was. You know, the more counterintuitive, the better for Michael Kinsley. Yeah, that's how I came up with gay marriage, because Mike Kinsley put me up to it. He would say things like, um, you say things to me like, write this now because you won't have the balls to write in 20 years time. If you haven't gone, if you think you've gone too far, you probably haven't gone far enough. Yeah. What the hell? Wonderful. Let's provoke. Let's argue. Let's fight. Let's. And also, let's get people in, in the New Republic. You could do this. You get people in the magazine fighting each other. I mean, it was, it was, it was all, as long as all done with brio and panache and style and, and passion, that's what, that's, of course, people want to read that. I, I, I'm depressed. Well, I don't know. Well, I don't know how long this period is going to go on, but it's a very, very damp and dank one. Yeah. Well, I think the sun is coming out slowly. I think Substack's part of that. And, the downward mobility that you and I talked about only 10 years ago for journalists. This has been a bit of a, a wonderful fillip at the bottom of the trough, as it were, and, right. and that we're doing really well. And it's also just wonderful to write for people who want to read you. You know, yeah. it's, just, it's, yeah. it's, it's wonderful. I have never been happier than I am in my own little, my little bailiwick. Tina, you are a living legend. I'm incredibly <laughs> psyched to have you on the show. Thank um, you, darling. Andrew. Thank you for all the work. I think that's done. just another word for old, but I'm happy to be old if you're in it's my all right. part we're, of the world. Old. Look at us. I mean, well, you look a lot better than I do, but you feel as young as ever to me. And oh, this well, book is too. full of someone that you don't know enough of, which is Tina Brown, the writer, uh, who is hilarious and, and fun and easy to read and it's a wonderfully readable book, and I hope you do more writing, Tina. Yeah, I, well, you know, it's the great freedom is to write. It's the truth. It's the one area you control completely. You don't have to worry. I love that about writing. You're in control of the page. You're in control of what you say, and it's the last bastion of being in control, essentially. You would you ever write a play again? You you wrote plays when you were in college. I might. I was thinking that the other day, or... actually. I might. I might. I mean, it is exciting. I feel I'm in a new act now. And having done the book, got that off my shoulders. I'm sort of looking around for what would excite me the most to do. You know, I've got, I've got, I've got to think out what that would be. But yeah, I could do that. I could. Yeah. You could do almost anything, but uh, we'll look forward to it. Palace Papers is Tina's new book. Tina Brown, uh, former editor of the Daily Beast, New Yorker, Vanity Fair, Tatler. It's been wonderful to have you. Thanks for coming. We will see you again next week. We have an amazing lineup of guests coming up, Frank Fukuyama soon, and, and we'll see you then. And by the way, I will say this at the end now, we don't have any ads on this. We're not bothering you with those. We don't pour ourselves out to various companies. I don't read out ads. The flip side of that was you need your subscriptions if you can. Please support us. Go to the Substack and, and help us out. And we'll see you soon next week on the Dishcast.